you have got to be patient. This is not a sprint. It is an absolute marathon. Organic growth is really, in my opinion, the only true way to make a stable, long-lasting business. And so if you want to come into the business today, don't expect to really be able to be set for 10 years. I mean, it's going to take you a while to build it up. Like any other business, right? Like any other business, there's no instant gratification. You got to put the hard work in and you got to have patience and you got to be willing to take your licks because it's not all fun. I mean, you're going to make mistakes. You got to pivot and learn from it. Welcome to the Midland Money Mindset. This is a podcast that's all about getting your mind right when it comes to all things money. In every episode, we go deep with engaging guests who provide tangible takeaways and a whole lot of joy along the way. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I enjoyed having them. Let's dive into today's show. I'm Larry Sprung, your host for the Midland Money Mindset and founder and wealth advisor of Midland Financial. Today's guest is Sawyer Bennett, New York Times, USA Today, and Wall Street Journal best-selling author. Sawyer Bennett uses real-life experience to create relatable stories that appeal to a wide array of readers. From contemporary romance, fantasy romance, and both women's and general fiction, Sawyer writes something for just about everyone. She is a former trial lawyer from North Carolina, and when she is not bringing fiction to life, Sawyer is a chauffeur, stylist, chef, maid, and personal assistant to her very adorable daughter, as well as a full-time servant to her wonderfully naughty dogs. Listen in and hear about Sawyer's journey from trial attorney to best-selling author. Well, hello, everybody. Larry Sprung here, and I have the awesome opportunity to have as a guest today, Sawyer Bennett, New York Times, USA Today, and Wall Street Journal bestselling author. Thanks for joining us today, Sawyer. Thanks for having me. This is very exciting. Yeah, it's great to have a conversation with you and uh, share your story with our audience. So what I'd like to do is for those people that may not know who you are, and even for those who do, can you tell us about your path to becoming a best-selling author? Yeah, so uh, I stumbled into it, kind of. <laughs> it wasn't planned. It was kind of a lark. I was practicing law. I'd been practicing law for 16 years doing civil litigation, had owned my own law firm. And I was an avid reader, and I read all kinds of things, horror, mystery, and I read romance, and I thought, I would like to write something and really build on my skills as an orator in the courtroom, so to speak. Right. And I really kind of thought romance might be the easiest. <laughs> so <laughs> I did it on a lark. I just, I had an idea, I put it on paper, I spit it all out. And I sent it to a professional editor, and it came back just completely, looked like somebody had been murdered on it, red ink <laughs> everywhere. I realized I really didn't know what I was doing, but I took all her advice and I applied went it. went from romance to murder mystery right, in exactly, a heartbeat. Exactly, <laughs> right? I decided to self-publish. That was a route I decided to go. I had absolutely no expectations, and I threw it up on Amazon only, and this was in January of 2013. And I put it for free for five days. I didn't even put a price tag on it. Back then, you could do that on Amazon. Right. And it went viral. And it went viral. This is the luck part, because that was right at the kind of peak where romance authors were starting to indie publish. 
And it was this huge wave. And there were all these voracious readers out there. And I had like 60,000 downloads the first day. And I was flipping out because I thought I'd be happy if I gave away five copies or whatever. And so that was my first book I published, but I didn't plan on doing anything with it. I was going to go back to practicing law, running my law firm. And I started getting emails from people that had read it and saying, when are you going to publish your next book? And I was like, wow, this was not something I had planned on at all. And (laughs) nor was my law partner. So I (laughs) wrote another book and I'm a pretty fast writer. I can crank out the words pretty quickly. And I put it back up. I put it on for sale, I think the very next month. And that one did even better. And then it had more response. And I wrote a third one. And that one ended up hitting the USA Today bestseller list. And it got the attention of an editor over at Random House who contacted me and wanted to know if I would write for them. So at that point, I kind of became, well, it was a crossroads. What do I do? (laughs) And I was making really good money off these couple books that I published, way better than I was making as an attorney. And so it was really tough because all I ever wanted to be was an attorney. And that was a big passion of mine. But admittedly, there was some burnout. And so I talked to my law partner a lot. And she ended up giving me a six-month sabbatical away from the firm to test this, to see if this could be a career that I wanted. And I'm so grateful to her. She's a major component in how I got to be where I am because she gave me the freedom to try something else. And at the end of that six months, there was just no doubt that this was my new career path. The money was the biggest factor. I mean, I was seeing a way to a better retirement. The law practice was very up and down, and it really kind of took a down when the 2009 bubble burst or whatever like that, and things got kind of bad for a while. So that was my path. That was a really long answer to a very simple question, but there was a whole lot of luck involved in that coming in at the right time. Had I waited another year? I don't know. I would be sitting here with you talking about this. Interesting. Your path is very similar to many of the folks that we've spoken to on this show in regards to their entrepreneurial journey. Many, many of them happen to be accidental entrepreneurs, if you will, which I consider you an entrepreneur because you have a business. You're not, you know, you're an author, but it's also a function of a business. And it's interesting that how many people accidentally end up where they are. And it's certainly interesting. So you definitely started writing while you had a full-time job in the law practice, and then you transitioned to being a full-time writer. Was that a struggle for you? What was it like to make that transition? Did you find it difficult or was it really easy because of the success that you had? Yeah. I mean, it was easy. (laughs) It was hard work. And it was a different mindset because now I'm working at home. Although in my law firm, we did do remote working for all the attorneys. We kind of switched out and let you work from home a little bit, which we found everybody was far more productive at home than in the office, believe it or not. But it was definitely a transition to work full time from home because with that comes an expectation that because you're at home, you have the ability to do everything. So I had to deal with, you know, when the washing machine broke or, you know, the exterminator came or those types of things. And it's really not true. It's the job that I really have to do. But I was loving what I was doing so much. And one of my favorite sayings is, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. And that was truly, truly what was going on with me. It made me feel like when I first started practicing law, and I kind of mentioned there was some burnout there. I spent a lot of time in the courtroom. I was trying a jury trial a month, which are, you know, they're very stressful, incredibly hectic pace, 
80-hour work weeks type thing. So that made the choice really easy for me to finally take that moment I had done, I think, what I accomplished to do as a trial lawyer in North Carolina. And it was time to make the move. That's great. And I think that that story resonates with me. I think a lot of people have a passion for something else. And a lot of times they'll make that jump or that leap like you would have just from law to writing and leaving the law behind without knowing if the writing is going to be successful or not. And I think that's far more difficult. I agree with the path you take took. rather. I think it's much better suited that if you have a passion Start going towards that passion, even if it's nowadays they call it a side hustle or side gig, even if you test it out that way to see if this is something you really want to make a switch to rather than just blindly going forward and throwing all your eggs in one basket. So we preach that all the time, that that's a great way to find out and then ease your way into something that you want to do and see if it's a good fit for you before you kind of go all in, so to speak. Yeah. And again, I have to give credit to my wonderful law partner, Jennifer Seat. I mean, she just was amazing, agreed to take on all the responsibility of the firm while I stepped away for six months to see if this was the right thing for me. And had she not been willing to do that, it's a totally different ballgame. Do you think you would have left anyhow at that point? At the time, my husband and I were in the process of either trying to have a child or through IVF or adoptions. So I knew our life was going to be changing. And when I say I practiced law for 16 years, I'd actually had been in the law since I was 15 years old. So it was like 30 years I'd been either as a, started out as a court runner to a legal secretary, to a paralegal, to a lawyer. So I'd really been working in the the only industry I've ever known my entire life. I mean, it's the only job I've ever held was being inside of a law firm. So it was probably time for me to actually retire more than anything, you know, <laughs> and try something else. But I was a little bit too young to not bring in incomes. Right. But yeah, the big credit to my law partner for giving me the freedom to try that because other people have to manage both jobs. I know so many authors that they're working full-time jobs during the day right. and cranking out, out, you know, words until two o'clock in the morning. And it's pretty brutal, I think. Yeah. And you wrote your first book, you said, what, 2013? Yeah, I think I wrote it in like 2012. And by the time I went through the editing process, I got it published in January 2013, I think. Was there a big learning curve for you through that process? You mentioned, yeah. you know, getting the book back from the editor and it looking like a murder scene. I mean, <laughs> was it a steep learning curve from well, that point on? Or Luckily, I'm a, a quick learner. And another kind of tie-in to my legal experience, I wrote in first-person present, which is how I was trained to talk to a jury. <laughs> I attended the Trial Lawyers College in Wyoming. I mean, by the famed lawyer, Jerry Spence, and I spent a month out there on his ranch. And one of the things they taught us to do is, is to never talk in third person to a jury, bring it first person, present tense, so you they are there in the moment with you. And uh, first person wasn't really all that popular in romance at the time. It was all third person. So I was doing something that many authors were still were doing, but it was kind of unique at the time, and it came a lot easier. So that part of the learning curve, once the editor told me kind of how not to hop head voices and people's heads and things like that, that came pretty easy. The learning curve was in how to figure out how to self-publish because I had to learn how to do cover design, book formatting, how to upload to the retailers, how to figure out to get paid by the retailers, how to market. And another person who I give a lot of credit to is an author by the name of Sarah Cannon. And she was living here in Raleigh, North Carolina or in the area at the time. And somebody had recommended her to me for some advice. And she wrote young adult 
kind of fantasy books, terrific writer. And I contacted her and I said, look, I need advice. How do I market myself? I'm getting ready to put this up there. I've got everything. She gave me information on how to upload everything. And she said, you know, the biggest piece of advice I can give you, and it stands true today to anybody that asks me, is quit worrying about how to market yourself and write your next book. Because until you get a lot of material out there and back matter, you're not going to make any money. You're not going to make any money by putting one book out, two books out. But I'm over 80 books now, and that's where things get rolling. And so I really followed her advice as a new author. And I would tell anybody today, just quit worrying about Facebook and social media and hiring PR companies and things like that. Get out there and write your next book so you can sell it. And is and, that because if somebody likes, if you have one book or two books and you put it out and somebody likes it and they go back to look for more, absolutely, you only have that one book. So That's this right. way, if you have 10 or 15, they go to look, there's 10 or 15 purchase options for that individual versus just one or two. That's right. And the more you build on it, the more read through you get. And eventually your backlist, those books that are six months to a year old, end up being their own revenue stream for you that just kind of sits there and, and, and it does its own little pretty thing. Right. So you mentioned, you kind of alluded to this earlier as far as now she making that shift from lawyer in an office to author, writer at home. You have a lot of different things pulling at you. And one of the things that we've seen with certain authors is some of them take it on as more of a hobby, like you said, where or as a second job where they have their primary employment and then they're writing in the evenings or something like that. And then we have others that are like you where they view it as their full-time job. So how do you structure your day? Because I, I would imagine that's pretty important, especially with deadlines, et cetera, and the fact that you have these other forces pulling on you, you have to make sure that you have some structure there. So how do you do that? How do you handle that? Yeah. So I think the first real big lesson I learned in how to make sure I had enough time to write at the very hectic publication schedule I set for myself. I try to release on average 10 books a year. And like many, 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 many people, whether you're a writer or anything, you get sucked into social media, which is a huge time distraction. So very early on, I had to learn to disconnect from social media because I could spend an entire day getting lost, (laughs) you know, posting tweets and all this kind of stuff. I was also lucky very early on to um, hire on an assistant. She started part-time and eventually became full-time Lisa Keene. And her title is CEO, Chief of Everything Officer, because she literally does everything. So the most important component I have to structuring my day is to have Lisa, who literally does everything and running the business except write the book. And when I say everything, I mean everything. (laughs) So to do my job and to do it effectively, which is putting the words out there, I had to make sure the rest of my business was running correctly. And the social media is a big component. So Lisa does that. And one of the things that makes me different from a lot of authors. A lot of authors really get involved in it on a personal level with social media, and I don't. I have an odd disconnect with my pen name persona. That's It's not who I identify with. Right. I identify with my real name and my real friends on my personal Facebook type page. And we use social media more to say, hey, look, this is what I have coming out type thing. So Lisa's managing that, and she's managing how to format books and arrange cover designers and proofing audio narration and and just anything you can think of. And so what I did is I have to get so many words a day. That's how I structure my day. If I know I've got 30 days to write a 75,000-word novel, 
I know it's X amount of 2,500 Right. words or 2,800 words a day, depending how long I want to make the book. And they got to be done before I go mm-hmm. to bed. And sometimes writing 2,500 words might be staring out my window for six hours, trying to figure <laughs> out what the chapter in the scene is. I'm not a plotter. I don't plot my books. I take them chapter by chapter, and I kind of let the characters drive where the book is going to go. And some days, I just know I have all the ideas, and I can write three chapters. I don't know how it's going to work. But the important thing is I have to get a certain number of words in, come rain or shine every day. And that's seven days a week. So I write seven days a week in order to meet my publication. So you're not necessarily writing when you feel creative per se. You're kind of forcing it. I don't know if that's a good word, but kind of forcing to get those 2,500 or whatever those number of words per day. You're trying to get that out no matter what. Yes, but knock on wood, I always feel creative. Okay. It is never forced to get them out. I've never had a case of writer's block. I know what I want to write and it comes out and I rarely go back and change things. I'm not one of these ones that moles and worries and edits a hundred times and takes chunks that scene. It just, I put it down. I feel confident in it. I move on. So luckily, the creativity has always been there. That's great. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) At the end of the day, I'm just curious, right? At the end of the day, you're done writing those words. You probably feel good. But at the same time, you know that you have those next words coming tomorrow. Do you immediately, when you put down the pen or stop typing these days, right, and satisfy those words, are you immediately starting to think about what you're going to be writing tomorrow, kind of get a jump on it, or you try to disconnect and worry about it once you kind of flip the clock, so to speak, on the writing for the next day? Yeah, that's a good question. And unfortunately, when I get my words down, I maybe I didn't overplay Lisa's role when I say she does everything, but there are some things I have to do. (laughs) We have to talk with each other and and decide how things are going to go. So Lisa and I talk every day. We have to make marketing decisions. We may plot, I may get on the phone with Lisa and we may plot out the next day's chapter and bat ideas around or something like that. So I'm not done when I get the words down. I still have a lot of, you know, little tiny loose ends and, and little administrative things that I might need to give some direction to Lisa on. But when I'm done, I do disconnect. I wait. And so part of my next work day is thinking. Right. And getting creative in my head to figure out what those words are going to be for that day. Kind of getting tuned up for yeah. typing, right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Or dictating these days, you know, right. I dictate most of my work now. So... Right. Do you find yourself like in the car, you come up with a great idea and you just give yourself a voice note, you know, for tomorrow or something like that? Not a voice note. I literally dictate the words. So Uh, rather than type, and I have a recorder in my car all the time and I get my best words in the car. So my dog Atticus (laughs) has to go to NC State. It's a half hour drive for his chemotherapy. I write a dictate a chapter on the way to NC State, dictate a chapter on the way back. I got two chapters done. Great so, use of your uh, card yeah. time. <laughs> I want to shift gears for a minute here. From when you started and you released that first book in 2013, there have been a lot of changes in your industry, especially in the indie publish area where you reside. What changes have you seen since you transitioned to a full-time author? What have you gone through? Well, the biggest thing I have seen is sharing market space in general, because back in 2013, the handful of indie authors who are self-publishing and millions of readers out there clamoring to get their hands on romance. I mean, romance readers, I mean, they'll read five books a week. Right. But then once it word got out <laughs> <laughs> that, hey, you can write books and put them up and make money, 
the market got very, very crowded. So you ended up, luckily I built up a bit of a fan base that followed me, but otherwise you had to get deal with less sales. If you did not have that fan base really struggling to try to make a living, I think those authors that were on the precipice of whether or not they moved from that full-time job into full-time writing may not have been able to make the leap because things went downward. The other thing that has changed for me in the market and not for all authors is that I made a very conscious decision early on to be wide on all retailers, Amazon, iBooks, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, Google Play. And while other authors just concentrated strictly on Amazon, I'm a big believer in not putting all your eggs in one basket because I never trust that one basket (laughs) to be in reach. I'm afraid somebody's going to take it away from me one day. And so over the years, I really worked hard to build up my fan bases on those other retailers. And so Amazon, it still sells the most, but comparatively to the others, it's not my biggest income generator. And then the other thing that has changed is learning how to find new streams of revenue other than just putting your books up for sale. So audiobooks, big deal. Right. You know, so you, everybody's now getting their books translated or narrated. And then as for translations, foreign translations. Now indie authors don't have to wait for a foreign publisher through an agent to say, hey, we want to translate you into Italian or German or French. You can go and hire your own narrators. So that's what we've done. We're in the middle of getting the entire backlist and then the front list as we go translated into a couple different languages to bring in that new stream of income. That's a positive change that's kind of taken place in the market. I know a lot of people in your industry who have put their eggs in one basket with, for instance, Amazon, have had a tough time and have had complaints about that for many different reasons. But it seems like you've done a great job by kind of keeping with the financial term, diversified, right? right? Keeping your diversification as far as your revenue goes. And then as far as the translation and the narration, that's really been areas that you've been able to expand the business and increase revenue, which probably wasn't as widely available and easy as it was 10 years ago or so. That's right. Yeah. So interesting. I know that you are very willing to help other authors, just like probably Sarah, who you mentioned early on, helped you in your career, which now that makes sense because that's probably one of the reasons why you are willing to help because somebody was there for you. Yep. What advice do you have for an author who's just starting out? Somebody who is kind of interested, thinking about maybe halfway through, three quarters through their first book. What advice do you have for them, somebody just starting out? Yes. So my first piece of advice is do not just write your book and throw it up there. Hire a professional editor the way I did. And that costs some money, but the lessons I learned were invaluable. If you do not have good product up there, people are not going to buy your books. You're going to get low reviews and you're going to sink to the bottom of visibility and nobody will find you. So you've got to have the best product up there. So you better not only have your book well-edited, well-proofed. And when I mean that, I mean, I have a copy editor and I have four proofers that proof my book sequentially after each one's done. You have to have a good cover. And so you've got to have all these components to really launch a really great product. And that's probably one of the things I see new authors making a mistake. They're so excited to get it up on the retailers because it's a fairly easy process to get it uploaded and have your book live and not taking the time to make sure that it's the best that it can possibly be. And then my next piece of advice is going to be exactly what Sarah Cannon told me, is sit down when you're done 
and write your next book. A lot of new authors feel like you have to go out and spend $5,000 on Facebook ads or hire a PR company. And the truth of the matter is, you're still not going to get noticed. It is very, very difficult. It is a rarity for that one author to go put that book up and for it to go viral these days. And for Plus, you there's become, not really a lot for them to buy other than that one book. That's at it. That point. You're done then. So and they're going to move on. What's your return on investment, really? That's right. The reader's going to move on and they're going to forget about you as well. Right. So, those are the two things I would tell people to do. You have got to be patient. This is not a sprint, it is an absolute marathon. Organic growth is really in my opinion, the only true way to make a stable, long-lasting business. And so if you want to come into the business today, don't expect to really be able to be set for 10 years. I mean, it's going to take you a while to build it up. Like any other business, right? Like any other business, there's no instant gratification. You got to put the hard work in and um, you got to have patience and you got to be willing to take your licks because it's not all fun. I mean, you're going to make mistakes and you got to pivot and learn from it. And do you find, you know, since that first time that you had that book edited, I mean, as that evolution from one book to the next book starts taking place, is there less involvement on the editor? I mean, you still want to do that to have the best product, but you also learn along the way as far as what you should and shouldn't do and how to write. So I would imagine it becomes more of kind of just a check and balance rather than a complete murder scene, as you mentioned earlier. Absolutely. So the editor that I hired, and I should qualify, was a developmental editor, someone that helps you develop the story in the proper way. I don't do that anymore. The ed- when I say I have an editor, she's a copy editor. She's going gotcha. through and looking for heavy grammar mistakes and that, right. I, you know, I don't have a run-on sentence for five paragraphs. And I did have a developmental editor who was my editor at Random House, who was fabulous, who would give me feedback when I started writing for Random House. But over the first couple of years, I came to realize I didn't need that. Some authors don't use developmental editors. They'll use critique partners. Another author who's familiar with the genre who will read the book and give you feedback. I never use those, but, but people do. And I think they can, that, those tools can be incredibly helpful until you feel comfortable with your voice, with your storytelling and, I've reached the point, like I said, I'm confident in it. I don't need a developmental editor. I don't need a critique partner. I have one beta reader, and as just somebody who writes my reads my chapters as I write them, and she's been reading my books from day one, and I trust she knows all my work, so she's in a great position. So there are a lot of tools at your disposal that, yeah. depending upon what you need, you can and can't use, but the whole idea is make sure you have a quality product and, and keep writing because you need to yep. have, you know, if you're going to start spending the money on marketing, there have to be books there for them to buy, not just one. That's right. So I'm sure you get a lot of fan mail, mail from readers, email, et cetera. What was one of the best emails that you've ever received from a reader? I've had a lot of really memorable ones. In many of my books, I tend to write, it's romance, but I also tend to hit on an issue, cancer, homelessness, PTSD, and the military. There's some all recurring themes I've had. So I get a lot of really good emails from people that my book resonates with or has touched or or that type of thing. But the best email ever is from the woman I mentioned who was a beta reader. And she had read my second book, Off Limits, so roughly around February-ish 2013. And she reached out to me, and her son had died by suicide. And they had just placed the headstone when she got the book. So she was just having all these emotions and really a tough time. And uh, she read my book, and it just made her feel good, the ending, the happily ever after. And she sent me an email, and she said, I just want you to know And this book I never thought would touch anybody. You know, it's a romance book, right? 
And it just really had a profound impact on her. And I was like, that was probably the first time I realized, wow, this is a serious burden I have really to kind of make sure I'm sending appropriate messages and things like that. So she just became a very dear friend after that. And yeah, she's wonderful. That's definitely my most memorable. Yeah. And I'm sure there are probably for everyone like that, there are probably 10 or 20 that the people don't reach out to you, but they've felt that similar connection and they just don't feel comfortable or enough to reach out and tell you how they were impacted. So. Yeah, well, listen, as you know, I'm a huge hockey fan, and I <laughs> no. know many of your books have a hockey theme to them. What is there a story there as yeah, to why, what's the connection? My dad, <laughs> I was born and raised in North Carolina, and my father was in the Marine Corps and was stationed in North Carolina when I was born, but he's from Western Pennsylvania, so huge Pens fan, Steelers, Pirates, and so I was raised on those, because in North Carolina, we didn't have those things here. We had just had college basketball right. back then. And I remember he took me to my first Pens game when I was, oh gosh, I don't know, 16, 17. And I had never really watched hockey or anything like that. I I watched a lot of Steelers, but I'll never forget that somebody got hit with a puck down near the goal and just bled all (laughs) over the ice. And they called a timeout and the refs run over there and they use their skates to kind of squish it all up up and scrape it up. up And there's this big bloody pile of ice. They just kick it to the back of the goalie net and they and they go on. The guy goes off and he gets a band-aid or, you know, a couple stitches probably and comes back on. I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> it's the greatest for you, not ever. for the guy whose no. blood it was on the ice. But, but the perseverance, you know, that right. these guys and I mean hockey players, you do. You see them go out, they'll get a broken jaw, they'll get their face sliced open, and they'll literally go back in the locker room and get patched up and come back out on the ice. So it was fun. And then it ended up just being something my dad and I did together. When he got on the Marine Corps, he opened up a bar and he had a lot of Steeler and Pens fans. And we would literally rent a bus that would seat 40 people. And we'd have all these Marines in Jacksonville and we'd drive up on a Friday to Pittsburgh Wow! and go to a game on Saturday and bring the bus back on a Sunday. And we did that for many years, all through my law school years and everything. And so it was a really great connection I had with my dad. Right. And I could have written about football just as easy because I love actually love football more than hockey. Okay, that's okay. But it, honestly, it was what Random House wanted me to write. They, When they reached out to me, they were like, are you interested in writing a hockey romance series? I'm like, I can do that. I know hockey. So that's how it started. And then my fan base went crazy. Did they give you any kind of indication why they were interested in hockey? I think there were a couple other authors out there that had put out a sports romance book, and they were seeing how popular it was becoming. And it did. The series that I wrote for Random House, my first hockey series is called The Cold Fury. It went nuts. Every single book, every single book hit a bestseller list. USA Today, several hit really high up on the New York Times. It just... The romance readers loved, I guess, that having a hero that was also a hockey player. It's good to me. Hey, right? listen, it expands the sport and gets more people interested in checking it out and there seeing go. what's going on. So, And the readers want that. They don't want you to just say, hey, the hero here is a hockey player, and then you have a story that doesn't talk, talk about hockey. I mean, you, you have to write about the dynamics of the team and... What happens on the inner workings? And luckily, I had a friend who played um, for the Carolina Hurricanes. I could go to and find out information. And they want to see scenes. They want to see action scenes on the ice. So you have to live up to it. 
That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Great story. And uh, I'm sure it brings up every time you write one of those books, some great memories with your dad, you which is uh, just what I call a strategic byproduct of what you're doing every day, I which is it. awesome. So I have to ask you this because this is the Midland Money Mindset. What is the feeling that you get when you put out a book and it hits New York Times, USA Today, and or the Wall Street Journal as a bestseller? How does that make you feel and what kind of mindset does it put you in? I'm going to be honest and probably say something I don't know that any other authors would say or if so very few. These days when I hit a bestseller list, it means I sold a lot of books. It doesn't mean I put out something that will touch somebody, something that will resonate, something that's a good product. So these days when I hit a bestseller list, I don't get too terribly excited. I hate to say it. I don't post it to my fans. If you go look at my social media, I I don't mention when I hit a bestseller list. There was a time early in my career, it was just the best thing ever. I mean, the first time I hit the New York Times, I mean, that's the pinnacle. That's what everybody aspires to hit. It was a dream come true, a true bucket list. But these days, I want to put something out that touches somebody in some way, even if it's only just to make them connect with the romance aspect and just sigh. Right. But I truly do hope to connect with readers. And that's kind of really more important. So, And that's not really measurable, I guess, from what you're saying, right? Those handful of emails you get. Right. When somebody says, hey, this made an impact on me. Yeah, I just, my my demographic of reader is female, but I get emails from men who read my books, older men. Right. Um, I had one gentleman, he was in his 70s, and he said, I love your work. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah, that's the cool stuff. Because you're striving, you're not paying attention necessarily to these bestseller lists, and you really want to write something that's meaningful. So do you measure one book versus the other by the number of responses or emails that you get? Or is there a way that you personally quantify how much of an impact one book has over another? Or it's just if you got emails that in response, you know you did your job kind of thing? I think first and foremost, it has to resonate with me. Because if it doesn't, it's not going to translate out to readers. It'll be fake. It won't have authenticity to it. And so... I really measure it. There are some books that I'm just so absolutely in love with that when I get done, I'm like, wow. And there are some books that I'm very satisfied and very happy with what I did. And I've got to be okay with it in the end. And I've got to feel good about what I put out. That's the only way I really, truly quantify it. Now, I have written a couple of non-romance books, and they resonate with me so much more than romance does. And I don't know if it's because I've been doing it for so long and that maybe maybe there's a level of burnout. I don't know. I still think I'm putting out good product because it, it's getting bought. But I did a general fiction book and I did a women's fiction book. And my romance readers don't want to read that. So my fan base didn't translate. But they were my two favorite books. I think they were the two that had the most meaning. They were the two books I got overwhelming amounts of emails Interesting. from. Because they touched on really, really significant, heavy issues. So, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. So that's a great way to measure it. And listen, if you're not making yourself happy from the get-go, then it's not really going to be worthwhile for you to continue long-term. So that's that's a great point. So listen, I appreciate your time thus far. And we end every show by asking all of our guests the same question, because this is the Midland Money Mindset. What did you do today that brought you joy and put you in the right mindset for success? In fairness, you gave me a heads up on this question, and I really thought about it this morning. I was going to tell you it was I went and did a um, my first canine good citizen test for my 
puppy Radley and I felt good coming out of there and really psyched <laughs> up. But actually, that wasn't it. It was dropping my daughter off for her first day of basketball camp. And she was really scared and nervous. And as a mom, I just was like, okay, you don't have to go. That's what I wanted to do. <laughs> but I really had to push her to do it, give her the reassurances. It's okay to be nervous. It's okay to be scared. You're going to come out of there at the end of the day. And I bet have made a ton of friends. And as I was driving away, I kept wanting to turn around and go back and grab her. But I felt really good about helping her face her fears, learn lessons, get out there and be social. There was I didn't have that growing up. We didn't do camps and things like that. And it, it made things difficult later down the road. And right. so that put me, ultimately, even though I was really nervous for her, it put me in the right frame of mind because she was doing what she needed to do. And I think I did my job too. And she's probably having a great time I think as she, we speak. I guarantee you she is. Right? <laughs> so, so that's great. Listen, Sawyer, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. And we'll have this information in the show notes. But if people want to find you, learn more about you, your books, where do they go? You know, you can put Sawyer Bennett into any search field on any retailer. My books are going to come up or you can go www.sawyerbennett2ns2ts.com. Great. Thank you so much for your time, Sawyer, and make it a great day. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. I want to thank Sawyer Bennett for being a guest on the Midland Money Mindset. Sawyer has transitioned from being a successful attorney to a wildly successful best-selling author. The transition has been one that provides her with the opportunity to do what she loves and brings her joy. Sawyer's willingness to give back to others in her industry is a true example of her abundance mindset and something that has served her and the industry well. Sawyer Bennett can be found across all social media platforms and all the contact information needed to find her can be found in the show notes. Thank you for joining us this week on the Midland Money Mindset. Make sure you visit our website at midlandmoneymindset.com and smash the subscribe button so you don't miss a show. We encourage you to help others find our valuable content and please don't keep us a secret. You can also schedule an Is There a Fit call right from our website or by using the link that you'll find in the description section of your podcast player or app. And be sure to join us for our next episode to learn more about getting your mind right when it comes to all things money. The opinions voiced in the Midland Money Mindset Show with Lawrence Sprung are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. No strategy ensures success or protects against loss. To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial or tax advisor prior to investing. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC registered investment advisor. Guests on the Midland Money Mindset Show are not affiliated with CWM LLC.